This is Joshua Bell with The Kilt and the Cloth. This was my sermon from April 11th, 2021, called The Inevitable Light of Being. I hope you enjoy, and God bless. My scripture this morning is taken from the book of 1 John, chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 2. So before everybody gets freaked out, it's not that long. It's only 13 or 14 verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes when we looked upon and have touched with our own hands concerning the words of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us all from sin. If we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. But, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. May God bless the reading of God's holy scripture. Amen. Now. The book of 1 John has a system that he likes to go with. He, he writes in kind of a circular fashion. We hear something of, of a first-hand, first-generation, first-century voice. And the words come to us from someone who has empirically encountered Jesus. That means being with him, right next to him while this is happening. The writer claims to personally have seen and heard and touched Jesus and has encountered Jesus. And he does this so that he can recall it to us so that, get ready, your joy may be complete. The claim that follows this introduction is a familiar one. God is pure light. For this writer, such a statement carries clear ramifications. Those who claim to be a part of God's life 
who make a career out of stumbling. You know, those that stumble around in moral muck. Honestly, you're just fooling yourself. He says, you have to walk in the light. Confess your sins. And the writer says and believes that Christ's sacrifice will atone all of us. However, to claim this relationship with the God of light, but to continue in the shadow lands is to live a lie. Now this is where the, uh, the writer and I depart from one another. It implies that somehow you have to move away from the place that you've been placed in order to express the light. If they're all sinful, the author might have you think that it's time for you to leave and go to a place, well, of supposed perfect people. And I have no idea where that is. But he also makes it sound as if, though, that we all have this light in this dark and dreary world. And so we find ourselves really asking, what is the church about? What is it that we do? You know, one of the hardest things about ministry in, I don't care what century you're in, and I don't care if it's in the middle of a pandemic, I don't care if it's just yesterday, any day that ends in Y, the question that church asks itself every single day is, is how are we relevant? What is our purpose? I think the author here gives us an idea that the church is not primarily a place for spiritually healthy people. The church is a hospital where the sick gather to be healed from disease. And as we say, the disease of sin we find ourselves coming to that moment in that place in our understanding that this forgiveness of sin is a real thing. The community of Jesus is not human sinlessness. Because, let's face it, we are all sick and need of a physician. The author gives us a sense of hope in the midst of this. Immediately in chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, we are carried up to the community's life in the present to consider the moral implications of what the church has heard and proclaimed. And folks, this is not necessarily always good news. Right? In the last two centuries, the word of the church that God has given to them has not necessarily always been proclaimed until after the fact of sin. Think about it for a second. The church stayed quiet during World War II. There were those that spoke out against the Holocaust and were very quickly silenced. There were those that spoke against civil rights and those that spoke for civil rights. The church, remember, the church spoke. And at the same time, we find ourselves finding ways of proclaiming the gospel when the world doesn't agree with what the church is about. 
the church is not primarily a place for spiritually healthy people. It's a hospital where the sick are gathered to be healed from the disease of sin and as far as I'm concerned, the apathy of society. Now let's look at this in a different way. Let me give you an idea of what I'm talking about here. See, part of the problem with the idea of church is, is that we paint this really pretty picture, but then what happens in reality is not the same thing. Think about it this way. I, I have a lot of minister friends of mine that, that are single. Because uh, Carmen and I, we got married way too young. I mean, we just, we, we agree with that. Uh, she doesn't agree, but I, I agree that we got married way too young. Moms and lots of grandmas and lots of aunts and uncles in churches. And every minister friend that I know has the exact same experience. And what happens is, is if somebody is single, what then becomes our responsibility? Well, really, it's nothing. But somehow we get the idea that we should be able to ones to help set them up with somebody. So inevitably, the single minister, whether it's a woman or a man, goes to the church and this wonderful person comes up to them and says, I have just the perfect person for you. And then ultimately set them up on a date. And the minister, because, well, let's face it, their job is a little bit precarious in that world. They set them up with this person that's perfect for them. And they go out to eat at a steak place. And you find out the person sitting across the table only eats tofu. Strike one. Then you find out that the person that's sitting right across the table from you has decided for some reason that they just don't want to shave anything. And all of a sudden you realize, well, this is fun. This is, this is great. They're obviously nothing in common, but they're the perfect person for us. And so the date ends amicably most of the time the minister friend running as fast as they possibly can to go home, hide, and bathe. Realizing this was a weird experience. And then having the inevitable uncomfortableness going to church the next Sunday and saying, how was your date? While they look at them and go, it was interesting. You can also look at this in the, some, some of you in the business world, when you get a resume of somebody, and it's, I mean, it's just glowing. And like, it, it, it's just bright and shiny. It's like as if angels themselves wrote the itinerary on this resume, and it sits on your desk, and you're like, we have to interview this person. And they come in, and instantaneously you recognize, uh, this is not the right person. Who is this person sitting in front of me? That's not the person on the resume. You find yourselves in this exact moment, realizing that sometimes the church is in the same category. Sometimes the church comes off as one thing, but what you find out is it's something totally different. Now, I can't tell you how many times I tell my wife, how interesting it is for me that I, I expect at any moment the shoe to drop and the heavenly experience that I've had with you for over four years is going to end. I wake up at night freaked out that something, somehow, someone I've offended or caused a problem with and we're going to have one of those meetings. 
And yet, it continues to not happen. It's a weird experience. Now John writes this portrait of Christian life as cyclical sinning, like you're always walking in darkness. So therefore you need to put yourself in a place where you're walking in the presence of light. And he gives us a simple process in order to do that. He says, number one, you've got to confess your sin. Not to me. I'm not a priest. You confess your sin to God. Second, you seek and receive forgiveness in that exact moment. And then, as John puts it, you are then walking in the fellowship with God, or a.k.a. walking in the light. You become the ineffable light of being. And then we go right back into sinning, because that's how the cycle goes, right? Today, I'm going to be a good boy. I'm going to go to church on Sunday morning, but by at least noon, something bad is going to happen, and I am going to have to ask Jesus for forgiveness. It's the cyclical way that John works. Now, there's another aspect to this that I talked about with the 815 service that I want to share with you is, is that part of the problem with this is that when we say that we walk in light, the hardest part about this is how do you find hope in the shadowlands? How do you find it? I mean, because let's, let's face it. If you are all just like that old song is, that this little light of mine, and you're going to let it shine... What happens when you walk out the door and it is completely dark? How do you find hope in the midst of that chaos? Dr. Kevin Bond and I were yesterday, we were out hiking, getting ready for our Appalachian trail trip. And it was funny because we were talking about spelunking, which he and I have no interest in whatsoever. One, I'm claustrophobic and two, He's like, I'm not climbing in some cave. <laughs> but there's something interesting about spelunking that I, I, it just kind of radiated in my brain yesterday that even in the cave that is just dark because it's void of light, just one little match can light that entire cave. One. And all of a sudden, everything becomes bright. And that is you. You become that hope for a dark and dreary world, no matter where you find yourself. Every single time that you feel like everything's being sucked up and taken away, you get to call upon that light. And again, the writer's giving it to us simple. You start off by saying, okay, here I am again, God. I've lost my way. And somehow, someway, some beacon of hope happens to you. I, I gotta, I gotta tell you this. It's, it's been crazy. I, I had to have this conversation with my wife on Friday. On on Friday, I had this conversation with her because it's a little overwhelming. In the last year, in the last year, I, I have had the inordinate, extremely scary experience of being entrusted with people's hope to other people that they might not ever meet. Let me explain. In the last year, 
When I'm feeling completely dark and upset and frustrated, somebody calls me up the phone on 7.30 in the morning and says, Josh, I couldn't sleep last night. Okay, I'm not sleeping anymore, so what's going on? Josh, last night I woke up and I had this weird dream that God put it in my heart that I need to do something for widows. What? Wait a minute, hang on. What? Yeah, God put it on my heart that I need to do something for widows. Just the word kept coming in my brain all night long. And so, of course, you know, you, you become entrusted with this moment. And, that, and this person is really called to doing it. And they find this person. And sometimes I, sometimes I connect them. Sometimes I don't. Because, honestly, it's one day as the next. And honestly, it's, it's, it's easy to be in the world that you're in and as, as if you're getting suffocated, right? On Wednesday, during Disciples Kids, we did this science experiment where we have this candle inside this jar and you take this jar and you put it on top of the candle and you wait until the candle is extinguished. That's a lot of every single day, right? And it's hard to find beacons of hope in the midst of that. And then you lift that jar up and that candle gets relit up and reignited. And at that moment, when this person calls me, that's exactly where I was. My candle was feeling as if it was being extinguished. Complete and total random stranger, I gotta do something for them. Okay. So that it becomes our task to help find, fill in the gaps so that that light can shine. You become the beacon of hope, the ineffable light being in the world. Why? Because God has called each and every one of you to be the light in a dark world even when you don't feel worthy. You don't get a choice. That is what it means to carry that light. And yes, just like the author says, it's a cyclical form of life. You sin, you ask for forgiveness, you get grace, and you go right back to sinning again. And you know what? God still loves you. And God gave you that love so much in the form of Jesus Christ that you have professed as your Savior. And so, are you going to go out in the world and let a bushel snuff out your candle? No. Are you going to go out in the world and let the devil blow it out, right? No. You're going to let your light shine. So let us be the ineffable light of being. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.